Good evening. We're glad you are here. Tonight, we'll actually be finishing the last two of the outward disciplines. So, so far in our discipline study, we've gone through the inward disciplines, and we tonight are going to finish the last two of the outward disciplines. And I think we got some challenging stuff ahead of us. So everybody dig in deep and let's, let's get ready to do some work. Before we begin, I have some uh, housekeeping stuff. Um, last week at the end of the study, it sounded like the children were coming through that wall first and then that wall second. And so I brought it up in staff meeting and they say it was a coincidence, but apparently I went over by about six minutes last week. And so... No one meant for this to happen, but, uh, but apparently um, <clears throat> going over is not good. And so we made a deal by the end of staff meeting. We, we, we put all our cards on the table and worked through it. And so here's what we came up with. At the end of a Wednesday and at the end of a Sunday morning, make sure you pick up your kids before doing your socializing and fraternizing. Cool? Is that all good? The reason is, is because the pe- Patrick, shut it. Um, <laughs> the reason is... That, uh, that uh, um, the, the workers, the other adults who are in the classes with your children are wanting to do the same thing you're doing, which is catching up with friends. And so I needed to be reminded of that this last week, because um, generally mine are the last ones to get picked up as well. So um, do your best to, at the end when we're done, um, go ahead and go get them. We also made a change that generally they'll just release the fifth and, fifth and sixth graders when they're done. And instead, they're going to do it like all the other children where uh, an adult will need to apparently pick them up. So um, no, no big deal. Just uh, try to make it a, a point to, to get there um, quickly as opposed to very, very, very slowly. And I'm going to do my best to end on time, and that'll help as well. So um, let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Lord, we come to you now, and thank you for this time tonight. Uh, Lord, I, I am um, eager for each of us to grow in the disciplines we're going to talk about tonight. Um, I'm eager to see many different individuals as part of a community um, really being transformed um, through, through discipline. Lord, we desire to be on the path of discipline grace, and we desire to honor and glorify you. And tonight, as we look at two ways we can do that, I pray that First, I pray for honesty. Um, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves and that we would be honest in in our response because just like all the other disciplines, um, it's going to take time to to put some of these things into play. Um, We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've had a few conversations with uh, people and some sort of... um, heard about conversations, and they go something along the lines of, um, wow, it's really hard to start doing all these disciplines really well at the same time. And, and so I want to encourage you, don't even try to do that. Um, the disciplines are, I, I want to encourage you to certainly grow in the disciplines and try to consider how you can spend more time in meditation, more time in, in prayer, uh, more time in the things we're going to talk about tonight. Um, but I don't want you to Approach it in a way where failure is inevitable, um, because the point is these are things that take time. You don't just become a, a really good athlete overnight. That's a, that's a person who's very disciplined because they've taken the time that's necessary. So, I bring that up because one, I don't, 
I'm thankful that there's still a number of people here, and you haven't just been like, all right, I'm out. Like, the meditation, I'm done. Um, I'm thankful that there's still a bunch of people here, but I don't, want, I don't want us to get more deflated as we reach the end of our study. I'm kind of fearful of that, and I don't want that to be the case. So um, tonight, we're, we're going to be talking about two things that I think are very challenging. And so don't be deflated if you're having trouble getting these things in motion. Just keep working on it. And know that tonight is no different, that these are things that are going to take time. It's going to take a change of heart. Remember, it's not just behavioral changes. We're talking about, we're talking about inward change that results in outward change. So in light of all that I hope to cover tonight, because we're covering two disciplines, and the fact that I'll be preaching on solitude, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, I'm going to skip the review <coughs> portion of our evening. My throat hates me right now, so um, just bear with me. So while we're not going to do a full review like we normally do for about 10 minutes, I do want to ask this question. What's the purpose of the disciplines? Yes, change, transformation. What kind of change? Total. Total transformation of the person. That's what we're talking about. So it's no different tonight as we talk about these two. Tonight we're going to be talking about two separate disciplines that go very much together. And that's why we're tackling them together. They're different disciplines, but they go together. And it's submission and service. Submission and service. Now, I think that when I mention service, there's at least some level of uh, immediate understanding as to what we're talking about. I think when I talk about serving other people, there's, we can all kind of quickly get on the same page, knowing that happens in a lot of different ways, but we know what that is. But when I mention submission as a discipline... I'm not as convinced that we're all on the same page as we begin to study it. So, when I mention submission as a discipline, what comes to mind for you? What are the things that pop into your head? Obedience. Obedience. Say that again. Your spouse. Something that doesn't come naturally. Loss of control. Now we're getting honest. That was like the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah, loss of control. What else? Say that again. <laughs> Did you see that? Um, yes, you have to have ears to hear. Ah, what? Protection, yeah. Anything else? Giving up your rights. And so if it's a discipline, it's a proactive, voluntarily giving up your rights, which is so un-American. So this is a, this is a challenge. Um, an opening question that I want you to ask yourself, don't answer out loud, uh, and I'm really glad you gave that answer because this is the question I want to sort of prime the pump with. I want y'all to consider this and really think about it. Do you have the liberation that comes from giving up your own rights? Do you have the liberation that comes from giving up your own rights? My fear is that as we talk about submission is that it has a largely negative connotation in our culture as if it refers to something that's against your will. Or it's like our last option once all other options have been exhausted. So when we say meditation, you're like, yeah, I can see that's good. Prayer, okay, that's cool. Serving other people, yeah, that's helpful. Submission, what? It feels like maybe it's different because of the connotation it has in our culture, sort of like 
well, I've done all I can, I'm just going to submit to the reality that it's not going to go the way I want it to go. Or, well, I'm out of options, so I'm just going to submit to whatever so-and-so says. Um, I think it's viewed negatively. And honestly, growing up in the church, I grew up smack dab in the middle of the church. I didn't hear much about this. I didn't hear much about this, as a, especially as a discipline. I mean, the other things, you know, prayer, serving people. But the discipline of submission is something that before preparing for this study, it, it was largely unknown by me. And so, um, so I want to dig into this a, a little bit. Foster has a note in his book, and he says, of all the spiritual disciplines, none has been more abused than this. And that's where I think a lot of the negative connotation comes from. Of all the spiritual disciplines, the discipline of submission has, has, is the one that has been most abused. And he says this, Nothing can put people into bondage like religion. And nothing in religion has done more to manipulate and destroy people than an efficient teaching on submission. So I want to be really careful tonight. When he says nothing can put people into bondage like religion, what, is it, what do you all think that means? Rules. Legalism. Yeah, he says my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, but sometimes religion feels like, man, take it on. Do this, do this, do this, and don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And so religion itself can put people into bondage in a very, very unique way because it plays on your emotions, it plays on what you believe about eternity, it plays on um, your view of shame and guilt even. And so religion can be used to put people into shame. Some of you may have grown up in homes like that where it was like... Um, well, what would Jesus think about you doing that or something along those lines? Um, it's okay to say, you know, is that what Jesus wants? But sometimes it's used more as a sort of a, a hammer to hurt people or to swing at people or to make people feel bad. And so um, religion can, can do that in a unique way. And so when he says that's a reality, then, and then even beyond that, nothing in religion has done more to manipulate and destroy people than a deficient teaching on submission. It's alluding to people who have overstepped power. It's alluding to people who have gone too far in their expectations or the requirements of who they're walking with. It's a, it's a people, it's, it's the result of people laying extra biblical um, uh, necessities on the lives of others. And so some of y'all may have had really terrible experiences in that regard, and some of y'all may be like, I don't really know what you're talking about. Either way, I want to be really careful. So let's look at 1 Peter 2 and begin to consider what the Bible really says about submission and how in the world it's a discipline that we should be about regularly. 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses, I'm going to start in 2.11, and I'm going to read through 3.7. So this is the largest portion of scripture that we'll read tonight, 2.11 through 3.7. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. All too often when we mention or read passions of the flesh in Scripture, we, just, we think it's just sexual issues. And we can't do that tonight. We will miss the point if we do that tonight. So as I continue to read, I want you to read and listen to this whole thing in light of an urging of someone who is beloved to abstain from the passions of the flesh, okay? 
So that, I want you all to read this section in light of those who are called to abstain from the passion of the flesh, and it's much more than just sexual stuff. Which wage war against your soul. <clears throat> Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's saying, keep yourself free from the passions of the flesh. What you need and what that means is I want you to watch your conduct in front of other people, all kinds of other people, not just particular people, all people. And then he goes even more specific in, in 13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, <coughs> whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So he's saying there's human institutions, like not church stuff, where you should be subject to those who are leading. And in doing so, you wage war against your flesh rather than giving into the passions of it, and you're setting some kind of example for those who are watching. And, and, it, and it speaks a message. So let's continue. 16 says, live as people who are free. So <laughs> just a little bit above it, it says, be subject. And here it says, live as people who are free. So I want us to see the possibility as we work through the scriptures here that it is possible to be subject to other people, even human institutions outside of church, and live as free people. So it doesn't mean you have no freedom. It means you're giving up particular freedoms, potentially, which we'll get more to in a minute. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Sounds like a line out of a movie, doesn't it? You see a bunch of people ready for war? Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I'm sure it's Scottish. Um, servants. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, what, <coughs> aside from the difficulty that comes from um, being subject to someone who's unjust, why is that a weird command? Like you think of that verse, if kindness leads to repentance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Kindness, love your enemies, leads them to repentance, win them over. And it's the right thing to do. What if I said to you, Christian people, go to work tomorrow and do what your boss says? I mean, is that profound? I just blow your mind. Why, why does that feel weird? That's what you do. Yeah, that's your job. Servants, be subject to your masters. I mean, you could almost picture a servant going, oh, thanks. As if I thought I had another option than being subject to the master. What I, the reason I point that out as we're reading through this is that in Christ, there are new realities. They, they have new freedoms in Christ that they've never had before. And so Peter is saying to them, you're going to have to make a decisive movement here, something from your inward spirit when you serve your masters now, for those who are in Christ. It, it's giving them a voice that they've not had before and making them make a decision that they've not been able to make before because 
He's starting with people who are obviously supposed to be subject to their masters, servants. And so here, things are changing because of the gospel, and he's saying, you are totally free in Christ. Live as a free person. Don't use it as a cover-up for evil and be subject to your master. It's a good thing. Submit to your master. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. I don't know if you've ever been unjustly suffered before, but generally, I don't jump to that verse if something like that happens. You've got to be mindful here. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, and the, and the clothing you wear. It's not saying don't wear clothes or jewelry. It's saying don't let that be your adorning. Like, it needs to be deeper than that. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Husbands, do not nudge your wives right now. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And it goes on, this a similar um, section of Scripture in Ephesians goes on to say, children, obey your parents. And fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. So, in what places do we find submission, and why is it being encouraged? I just read about it in some different places. What are those places, and why is it being encouraged? What? Marriage. Marriage? Work. Work. Church Church leadership. Secular Secular leadership. Government. Government. Parenting. Slavery. Okay. The biblical teaching on submission focuses primarily on the spirit with which we view other people. This is all about how we view other people. That's what we're trying to get to the heart of in this, in this teaching. When we talk about submission, we're talking about how we view other people. Some of us should be, as we read through that, we should be maybe convicted about how we talk about a politician or a leader of some country that you don't like. Maybe we should be careful. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace 
to those who hear. So you're not allowed to let anything come out of your mouth that's not edifying and building somebody up at some point and making sure you're not just saying what you want when you want, but knowing that there are words fitly spoken, like apples of gold and settings of silver, spoken the right way at the right time. And so um, I want us to be honest about the things that will trip us up in this because submission is difficult. The biblical teaching focuses primarily on the spirit with which we view other people. Scripture does not attempt to set forth a new series of hierarchical relationships, but it communicates an inner attitude of mutual subordination. What Scripture communicates when we're talking about submission is everybody submitting to each other. Our membership covenant um, uses the phrase functionally subordinate, like the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, gently mutually submitting to one another in different things as they have different responsibilities and different calls and different things going on at different times. We've, you've heard the word perichoresis. It's a blur. It's like a dance. This dance, this blur, this community that we have with each other where we're mutually functionally subordinate and sub- <coughs> submitting to one another is, is beautiful like the dance of the, of the Trinity. Um, and a, a big reason that we're able to do that is because Ephesians 4 says we're supposed to trust each other. Now, some of y'all might be like, where does Ephesians 4 say I'm supposed to trust people? Um, I think that's difficult for a lot of people. I I mean, I I am blown away at how many people have been terribly wronged, how many people have been treated like garbage by other humans. And so when we talk about submission and, hey, part of your call as a Christian is to trust your brothers and sisters, I just know that the hair stands up on... Some of y'all's next. I'm just like, you are. <laughs> You're pushing it. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. But I want y'all to know we're, we're, we can do this. We can submit to one another because of what Christ has done and because of the trust we're supposed to have with one another. First Peter 2.18 insinuates that one could be a slave and do what the master says but not have an inner spirit of submission. Do you see what, why I'm drawing that out? The slave would still be there and the master would still be there and the slave could still do what the master says but what Peter is addressing is saying there's a possibility that you could do what the master says and not have an inner spirit of submission so I want y'all to make an inward connection here like it's not just a matter of being available to maybe sometimes do something someone else needs but having this genuine and general inner spirit of submission where you are looking for opportunities in the lives of other people. Look at Matthew 5. We've actually already covered this in a different section. If we're not living sacrificially, we're probably not submitting to one another. That's exactly right. The punchline, I'll go ahead and share it since you spoiled it, is, is that you're not genuinely going to serve anybody if you don't have an inner spirit of submission. You can't rightly serve anyone if you don't have an inner spirit of submission. It's an impossibility. You can go through the motions, you can, you can look the part, but you're not genuinely submissive in service. Um, they, they have to go together. So in Matthew 5, 39... <coughs> 
It says, um, <clears throat> but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I need a volunteer. <laughs> um, if anyone slaps you in, the, in your stinking face, say, Jesus, this is G- these would be red words if you had the red word Bible. It says, off for the other cheek. Does anybody do that naturally? No. It's like, I'll rip your face off if you slap my face. It's like, that's the gen- just, just response. That, that's why this is a discipline. We have to think through these kinds of things. Well, I got in a fist fight when I was, it was last year. No, I'm just kidding. I was much younger. Um, it was like, uh, I guess I was in sixth grade, so I must have been 12. And we had just had this dang Bible study lesson the Sunday before. And so um, I beat this guy in basketball because I was so much better, and he got mad. And, uh, and he came up to me and said something, and I said something, and someone said something about someone's mom. Anyway, it got out of hand. And, uh, and, uh, and, he, and he just reached up and went, wham, and just caught me right here. I was like, and I was so conflicted. I was like, that hurt, and I want to inflict pain on you. But I, was, I just had this Sunday morning Bible study on turning the other cheek. So I was like, I just had a Bible study on turning the other cheek, and you should, you're lucky. I'm leaving. And so I walked away. I totally walked away, and he's like, looking at me like, what in the world just happened? I thought we were going to fight, and you said a Bible study on turning the other cheek. An hour later, I went and looked for him, just so you know. I'm not, I, I, I had decided it was a bad idea, and I wanted to find him. But I didn't, so I still turned the other cheek, technically. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, again. And so, th- this, this teaching on retaliation. And then below, in the next section, in 544, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you don't have an inward spirit of submission, it is an absolute impossibility to love your enemies because you won't see them as remotely valuable. You can see your enemies as valuable, not just because of what they can do for you. It'll be impossible to pray for those who persecute you if you don't have some inward spirit of submission. I mean, Jesus submitted that's why he was allowed to be persecuted, is because he submitted. And certainly, the call to sometimes, and I'm, I'm saying sometimes because there are biblical examples of both, sometimes we're called to surrender our right to retaliate. It takes wisdom. It takes discernment. And you will not have the wisdom and discernment to know when you should refuse your right to retaliate, surrender your right to retaliate, unless you have thought about it beforehand. Unless you spent moments with the Lord saying, help me to represent you well in every conflict. So Jesus is teaching us about submission to others, and he's teaching us about our rights, and he's saying, value other people enough to even be able to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, and sometimes surrender your right to retaliate. Turn to Mark 8. Mark 8. So those were Jesus' words, and here are some more of them. Mark 8.34 says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone (coughs) 
if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What two things have to happen before you follow Jesus? Deny yourself. Have any of y'all tried to take up your cross and follow him without denying yourself? You find yourself very conflicted very quickly. Yeah, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. Let's do this. Oh, you want me to go where? You want me to talk to who? You want me to give some stuff up? You want me to wake up when? Like there's all kinds of things that pop up, and that's why he says to count the cost, because it is an impossibility for you to take up your cross and follow him without first denying yourself. Here, submission. Submission is a denial of self. You cannot successfully follow Jesus if you have not taken that step, and if you do not repeatedly, over and over again every day, take the step to deny yourself. So, take up your cross and follow me. Um, what, what, is, what does he teach us? What are some things that jump out about what he's saying here about submission? I'm sorry? Would I repeat that? I thought you gave an answer that you were laughing at. Um, what does this teach us about submission? What Jesus says here, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's going to hurt. Not easy. It's going to be worth it. Has he been crucified yet? Yeah, at this point, he's just giving, it's like, he's saying to them, take up your electric chair and follow me. Take up whatever form of gruesome death that awaits those who would turn on the authorities, which gets complicated, I'll explain it. Um, follow me. And so the most radical social teaching of Jesus was just his total reversal of the contemporary notion of greatness. Leadership is found in becoming a servant. Power is discovered in submission. It seems like you're giving up your power, but you're genuinely discovering your power in submission. The foremost symbol of the radical servanthood is the cross. Philippians 2 says he, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what we're seeing here, and what I, what I want us to make sure we get is that the, the symbol of radical servanthood and submission is the cross. And here's what I want us to see. <coughs> Christ didn't just die a cross death, he lived a cross life, is how uh, Richard Foster explains it. He didn't just die a cross death, but he lived a cross life. I've, I've heard the phrase, um, you know, some of you are more than willing to die for Jesus, but who's willing to live for him, you know, that kind of thing. Um, kind of cheesy, but it does get to a point that, that's real on, um, on living a cross life. And what that looks like is, is what Jesus did. So it's not going around as the outspoken wannabe martyr. It's, it's small things. Jesus Christ lived a cross life before he died a cross death by doing things like taking women seriously. He took women seriously. That wasn't customary at the time. He lived a cross life by being willing to meet with children when it wasn't normal or even reasonable. He made himself low. 
He didn't just make himself low. He made the women and the children above him. He, he, he says, put their interest above your own. Look not only to your own interests. So, across life, as an act of worshipful submission so far, just to make sure we're all on the same page, who, who are we to be submissive to so far? Just to make sure we're all on the same page before we move on. Pretty much everybody else, yeah. Uh, the emperor, government authority, parents, spouses, one another, brothers, sisters. Lots of submission for those who are in Christ. Is there anyone that's off limits? Yourself. Yeah, good answer. Satan? Not our children? Is there anyone who... Yes, but there's a part of it that we will be, in a, in a sense. Someone raise your hand back there? I think you're exactly right. Turn to Acts 4. It's the very next thing in my notes. Because I figured at this point, everyone's going to be saying, hold on, dude. There's bad people out there, right? There's some people that need to be locked up. Acts 4. So in Acts 4, this is Peter and John before the council. And in verse um, 19, we'll start there. Oh, we'll start above because it, it's kind of funny. Um, verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this time. So they're, they're sharing the message of Christ and people are starting to believe them. And so they're like, let's, let's rough them up. Let's bring them in. And... Uh, and it says here, um, it says, we're, we're going to just tell them to quit talking about it, and, and that, that'll work. But in order that we not may spread, they speak no more of any, to anyone in this name. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak, but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what, he, what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. They really showed Peter and John, didn't they? So um, look down at 529, same, same book, Acts 529. The apostles have been arrested and roughed up, and in 29... Um, Look at 27, and when they brought them 
They set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. What does this say about the limits of submission? You don't submit to something that's opposed to God. And that's the exact place where, as you were just saying, you find your boundaries. If someone in a different, if someone who's not your husband starts treating you like he's your husband, that's outside of God's design. And that doesn't work. The limits of the discipline of submission are at the points at which it becomes destructive. It's the points at which it becomes destructive. That is the limit of the discipline of submission. When it becomes destructive, and we will say it becomes destructive when it goes against God, and when it goes against what God has revealed to us about what is right and what is good. So in short, there are limitations, but submission is a lifestyle that says this. Wherever I am, wherever God has me, there are people around me. And I should serve those people. I should have a submissive attitude towards others. Let there be right, God-given boundaries within those relationships. But even like with children, you can look and say, I want to have a submissive heart. I want to serve. And that attitude of submission is what will result in service. Essentially, what you're, what you're free to do there, I, my hope is that at the end of tonight, you'll say, Whatever, wherever I am, whatever room I'm in, I look at a room full of people that I should be in some manner, in a healthy, biblical, good, God-given manner, I should be submissive to them. And that just means I'm, you're free to value people. Because if you're in a room where you're like, I'm above everybody else and I will not serve, you don't value people. You value them only in as much as they can benefit you. But if you come in ready to serve, wherever you are, you're freed to genuinely value people. And that attitude of submission results in service. So the cross, if you're taking notes, write this down. The cross is the sign of submission, and the towel is the sign of service. The cross is the sign of submission, and the towel is the sign of service. Turn to John 13. John 13 says this. Start in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what, am, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus said, if, you, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Everyone's like, Peter, shut up. <laughs> and then in verse 10 it says, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But it's completely clean. He's making a point. Everyone in this room needs to wash their feet. You don't even have to go to this deep symbolic metaphor. Everyone's feet in the room are dirty. They just got there. It's not, the, the feet are not necessarily symbolic at, the, at this moment. 
because Peter's looking at him with a towel going, huh, my, my feet are caked in junk. And Jesus saying, yeah, I'm gonna wash them. Why? Because they're dirty. Everyone's feet are dirty. So, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. It's completely clean. And you're clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, they wore sandals, and it was muddy, and it was nasty and dirty. And they came to a room, and everyone's feet needed to be washed. Anyone know what was happening just a little bit before this, what the, what the disciples were arguing about? Mm-hmm. Who's the greatest? They were arguing about who's the greatest. And here they are, needing their feet washed, and they've already established that they all think they're each the greatest. And Foster in his book states, gathered at the Passover feast, the disciples were keenly aware that someone needed to wash the other's feet. It was customary. Someone's got to wash everyone's feet. It's disgusting. The problem was that the only people who washed feet were the least. So there they sat, feet caked with dirt. It was such a sore point that they were not even going to talk about it. They weren't going to bring it up. No one wanted to be considered the least. After all, they'd just been arguing about who was the greatest. And then Jesus took a towel and a basin and redefined greatness. So in your own words, how did he redefine greatness? Became the least. Served. It's a great connection. You know, yeah. Yeah. Well, the Passover, this wasn't the first time for the Passover either. He was changing the Passover. And what's interesting to me is that there's probably a moment within the next few days where they all found themselves in a room with dirty feet and Jesus wasn't there. Right? There's probably a moment where they came to this room and they all had dirty feet, and they're kind of looking around wondering who's going to take care of the dirty feet. And probably all of them are remembering Jesus' words here of, as a servant greater than his master, do as I've done. I'm, I've sent you to do that. Um, what we're looking at here, um, first of all, is this intimidating or unsavory to anybody? It is to me. And I hope that's why I pray for honesty in this. Have you ever had anyone actually wash your feet? Oh, I hate it. There was a service like early on here at Crosspoint, and Ben was talking about washing feet, and like he had secretly brought in a basin of water and a towel, and he was like, I'm going to wash some guy's feet this morning, and he called me up, and I was like, I'm going to kill you. This is a terrible idea, and I don't want to take my shoes off. I mean, it was just like awkward, and then to, 
to then then it's like, uh, so now do I wash his feet? You know, it's like this, it's it's not this normal thing. It, I think what we're looking at here is is the thing that makes it intimidating and unsavory. This kind of movement is because what we're talking about is vulnerability and availability to other people. Vulnerability with other people and availability to other people. Write in your notes. Vulnerability and availability. Has anyone ever asked you to come and help them move? I was trying to think of an example. I think most of us have had someone ask them to come and help them move. You never know what you're going to get. There was one time my uncle said, hey, will you come help us move? Um, and he's a CEO of a big company, and, and, and he used his skills. And I walked into his house ready. I was a teenager at the time. I brought my truck. I'm like, all right, let's do this. And I walk in, and it's boxes with numbers. He had already boxed everything. And all the boxes had numbers. And they went on in numeric form onto the truck. And in reverse, they went to the closest rooms upon emptying them at the new house. And I had a checklist and a chart. We got six number ones, eight number twos. One hour, we had that thing loaded up and emptied. Now there's other people. You show up, all the dishes are still in the cupboards, all the clothes are still in the closet. All the clothes are still in the dresser. There's still food on dishes from the previous four meals. And it's frustrating because you don't know what you're going to get there. You, there's vulnerability and availability where you're saying, sure, I'll help you move. And you know that when you commit to that, you're committing to helping until it's done for the most part unless you have something come up. <laughs> and... and and you don't know what's going to happen. So you might get the, my uncle's scenario where it's like, this was awesome, thanks. Or you might get the people who are like, hey, we did nothing in preparation of this day of moving our entire life to another house. Um, you don't know what you're going to get there. Um, so some of us may hear this kind of service to people and say, I just don't know, I don't know, that's just too, that's too much. I don't, I don't want to be that available to people. And Thomas Kelly has this. He says, I find God never guides us into intolerable scramble of panting feverishness. God's design isn't that you would get totally freaked out in panting feverishness from serving people. God doesn't want to turn us into a bunch of Marthas. He wants us to be available. And if we follow his lead and we stay in step with the Spirit, generally he's not going to guide us into a life of people taking advantage of us and crushing us because we were for a moment vulnerable and available. It's going to be the small things, the menial, mundane opportunities that, that would probably most likely to drive us crazy, the over and over things, the repeated things. So what I want us to see here is that it, with all the disciplines, just because you're doing them doesn't mean you're doing it rightly, right? What are some ways we could serve people the wrong way? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, not that that would, no, no. Serving only people who you know will benefit you in the future. Yeah. You ever done that where I was like, I was totally going to do that. Now I can take some credit and look awesome because someone asked me to do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's serving in an imbalanced manner, absolutely. I want to take a few minutes just here in closing. <clears throat> um, 
and it'll be quick. Differentiating between self-righteous service and true service. Self-righteous service and true service. Self-righteous service is impressed with the big deal. True service finds it almost impossible to distinguish between the small and the large service. My mother used to be so angry. Me and my brothers have all been on different you know, mission trips, and we've been to everywhere from England to other parts of Europe to Mexico to Belize to Haiti to Africa. We've done all these things. And my mom used to say, um, why is it that you will go and serve strangers in a foreign country that you don't know, and you cannot mow the yard when I ask you to do it? Why is it that you're cool hanging out with the orphans in a third world setting and you will not clean up your own room when I ask you to do it? And frankly, she was on to something because self-righteous service is impressed with the big deal. You don't want those quiet things that no one knows about. It's like, oh, there's a huge thing that gets lots of public attention. I'll do that. Self-righteous service requires external rewards. It needs to know that people see and appreciate the effort. It seeks human applause with proper religious modesty, of course. Modesty, of course. Self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. I went to a church planting conference one time that turned out to be a church growth conference sometime. At some point, it just shifted. And, um, and it was all about results, and it was all about the big deal. The guy was selling a book called Go Big or Go Home. It's not a lie. It happened. <laughs> Self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. True service is freed of the need to calculate results. I remember the Sunday morning where Ben and I were freed of that need. We had a chart in the back hallway over here, and it said, how many people were in Sunday school? How many people were in worship? How many people gave? How many people were in the nursery? How many baptisms? And every week we would go back there, the little, yeah, the little things, and every week we'd go back there and are we, let's go validate ourselves or decide we stink. And I remember we were looking at it one, one Sunday, and Ben just goes, and took it off the wall and just walked away with it. I never saw it again. <laughs> um, Self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. Um, true service is free of the need to calculate them. It delights only in the service. It can serve enemies as freely as it can serve friends. Self-righteous service picks and chooses whom to serve. True service is indiscriminate in its ministry. It has heard the command of Jesus to be a servant of all, as he says in Mark 9. Essentially, it's a person who's looking for the needs. Looking for the needs, indiscriminate of who it is that has the need. I'm going through these quickly. I'll email them all out. Just like those things from two weeks ago. I'll email them together. <laughs> Self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims. Oh, this one's hard. Self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims. Like, I'm in a bad mood. I serve no one. Get away from me. Um, true service ministers simply and faithfully because there's a need. The service disciplines the feelings rather than allowing the feeling to control the service. The service disciplines the feelings rather than allowing the feeling to control the service. We've said that another way previously, that just because you feel a certain way does not mean it is a certain way. We're not designed to be governed by our feelings. Self-righteous service is temporary. True service is a lifestyle. Self-righteous service is insensitive. True service can withhold service as freely as perform it. It can listen and be patient with tenderness and patience before acting. It can serve by waiting in silence if that's needed. And the last one, which I say for last because I think it's really important, self-righteous service fractures community. Self-righteous service fractures community, usually by putting others in debt, becoming one of the most subtle and destructive forms of manipulation known. I did something for you, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. True service builds community. 
True service builds community. It's so the Sunday message, this last Sunday's message. It's so what we talked about at our deacon meeting on Sunday. <coughs> True service builds community. It quietly and unpretentiously goes about caring for the needs of others. It draws, it binds, it heals, and it builds. Something that emerges as we consider these details is the reality that by God's design, there are things that you need to do for other people every day that are not on your to-do list at the beginning of the day. There are things you need to do for other people every day that are not on your to-do list at the beginning of the day. It's good to plan ways to serve other people and to have the spirit of submission, but if you genuinely have it, you'll be um, disciplined enough to be willing to be inconvenienced even with small things. In Matthew 20, 28, um, Jesus says, um, I came not to be served, but to serve. I mean, that's, that's our example for submission and service. They had had this misplaced conversation about who's the greatest, and Jesus says that he himself came not to be served, but to serve. So in closing, <clears throat> in every situation, we need to look around and remind ourselves that we're here to serve, not to be served. At work, you're there to serve, not to be served. At the end of a long day when you get home from work, you're there to serve, not to be served. When you're invited to someone else's home for a meal, you're there to serve, not to be served. Even when you're on vacation, you're there to serve, not to be served. And there's freedom in it. And there's the joy of experiencing the valuing of other people. Look for opportunities to serve, not to be served. Um, this will almost always play out in small actions of service like dishes and laundry and helping people with things that aren't huge, but they'll be over and over again, and I think we'll see them more if we have this inward spirit of submission. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time tonight. Help us to learn from it and grow in it and walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please expeditiously go get your children because I went six minutes over again. <laughs>